This is an ABC podcast. In 2022, many Australians have experienced another year of extreme climate events, so much so that it's becoming something politicians can no longer ignore. So how does one govern in these circumstances? I'm Cassie McCullough, and that's the question being grappled with in today's Best of the Festivals, which comes from the Byron Writers' Festival. We'll hear from journalist Marion Wilkinson, author of The Carbon Club, Tim Hollow, Australian Greens candidate and author of Living Democracy, and Jeff Sparrow, journalist and author of Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating. Paul Barclay sets up the conversation with a question. Will the change of government in Australia and more independent and Greens MPs calling for serious action make much of a difference to climate change policy? Marion Wilkinson. I think the fault line for this government still remains, which is essentially that it will not take a position in direct opposition to the fossil fuel industry. There's a lot of reasons for that, as we know, there's a lot of history behind that, but that to me is a fundamental fault line that I think will get more and more problematic as this decade goes on because for anyone, especially the scientists, but also many of our citizen scientists who I'm sure are here today knows we are really, really on borrowed time with reducing emissions, not only in Australia, but globally. And we are absolutely on borrowed time, as all you lot know, about adapting to the destructive aspects of climate change that are already, already coming through. And of course, we need uh, no better reminder of that than what's been happening up here. So time is limited. And I think this fault line, this contradiction for the Albanese government will become more and more acute. How are you seeing it, Jeff? Are you seeing this as a significant break from the past? Are you expecting significant progress? These are really strange times, aren't they? You know, that there's that old um, saying that if you touch somebody with a feather, different individuals will react in different ways. You know, some will laugh, some will be annoyed or whatever. If you touch someone with a hot iron, everyone reacts in the same way. And we are now living in times when governing parties are being touched with hot irons in that we are going through crisis after crisis. And what it tends to mean is that while we are seeing populist movements of the right and the left emerging, there's a tendency, I think, for parties of government to end up responding in very similar ways because they are buffeted by events. So you only have to think about things like, like uh, the COVID pandemic and governments all over the world, irrespective of their ostensible political coloration, started to take similar kinds of measures. And I, I suspect this is gonna be the tendency going forward because we're not going to get those kind of periods of stability that political leaders look for where they can, you know, implement grand strategies. What we are going to get is sharp breaks and a series of rolling crises as the uh, environmental breakdown intensifies. So, uh, Tim, full disclosure here, you're, um, you stood as a Greens candidate, uh, so I just thought I'd put that out there. Uh, you also, with your Greens hat on, worked with the last Labor government as a, as a Greens advisor to Christine Milne. Mm. And uh, so you know what it's like when the Labor government passes measures to deal with climate change, the, yep. the, uh, the, the measures that... Um, that Julia Gillard introduced as Prime Minister that were then repealed when Tony Abbott came to power. Does it feel different to you this time? Do these measures that are being introduced by this government appear to you to be the start of something more substantial or just a repeat of what we've seen before? I think that's still to be seen. It's really not clear. I think we've had what's what's clear is that this is a this is an important step that has been made both in terms of, of shifting us to a greater level of emissions cuts, but also 
you know, from a from a standoff in the first couple of weeks of the new government to a very swift shift to everybody kind of saying, well, we're going to have to try to work together. And that's a really important step. Um, but I think, you know, Marion's dead right in her analysis that what it's going to come down to is the future of fossil fuels. And and I was just saying to Marion before this session started, having just reread the Carbon Club on, on the way up here and reminded of of that era and, of course, you know, going through to, to the current election, it's really, really important for us to kind of to, to set that in front of us in really clear terms. We know that in order to tackle the climate crisis seriously, we're going to have to end the use of fossil fuels and we're going to have to end the use of fossil fuels fast. And looking back at this history of a quarter of a century of struggles over climate politics in Australia, neither of our major parties has at any time signalled that they're willing to do that at any moment. So if you're looking at Labor supporting fossil fuels now with surprise, you haven't been paying attention, I'm afraid, because they've been telling us constantly that they support fossil fuels. And that's going to be where things... That's going to be really where the rubber hits the road. Is the Labor Party going to be willing to work with the crossbenchers, both the community independents and the Greens, to move in that direction? Or are they still too tied up with the systems of power? And, and it really goes very, very, very deep. The systems of economic and political and cultural power in Australia are so deeply entangled with fossil fuels. My belief is that we're going to have to go very, very deep into disentangling those systems of power before we're going to actually get the progress that we need. And in some senses, my, my prediction is that where this election with a great big crossbench was a bit of a tipping point towards the end of the two-party system, my bet is that this term of government is going to be the proof of failure of that system. And it's going to get even bigger and bigger and bigger over the next few mm. election cycles. Uh, Marion, Tim mentioned there the Carbon Club, your book. Uh, it tells the story about how a powerful group of business leaders, climate sceptics, politicians managed to stymie government action on climate change for, well, three decades, really. How much does this climate carbon club, I should say, continue to wield power, how much of an obstacle will it continue to be as the climate emergency heightens? Yeah, it's, it is very interesting. Clearly, there's a split emerging, uh, has emerged for a while now between the, especially the financial industry, about people who are sticking with the fossil fuel investments, people who are trying to very much get on the bandwagon with the renewable energy industry. I think in Australia it's very complicated. It's complicated by the fact that the unions on the Labor side are very still very wedded to the fossil fuel industry, key unions. I think also some superannuation funds, uh, and that has a big sway over people who are investors for their retirement. But I think what Tim was saying before is right, there is a cultural addiction to the fossil fuel industry. And a lot of this is the sort of invisible lobbying that people don't see. But it is that lobbying that says, really, there's fundamentally no other way. I think what has been accepted by the Labor Party and even some in the Liberal Party is that we can move from coal to gas. But you can see now what's happening very clearly with the gas industry here is absolutely digging in for the big fight. Mm. You see it especially in places like the Northern Territory in Western Australia, even in Queensland. And I think that's going to be problematic for us uh, because not only uh, is it increasing emissions globally, but for Australia and for the Labor government, these LNG plants, the extraction of this gas is going to add mightily to our emissions. And so everyone's going to be told, reduce your domestic em emissions. And I know Jeff's <laughs> written about this sort of thing. Get your personal footprint down. But what's happening with the gas industry, you really need to keep your eye on because that is where I believe the fight is today. Yeah, I mean, the government's making much of its increased 
carbon emissions reduction target, Jeff, but um, it has, of course, also given the tick to a number of new resource exploration projects, hasn't, hasn't it? I mean, it kind of it makes you wonder how, on the one hand, they're championing climate change action, on the other hand, expanding the fossil fuel sector. Yes, and I can't recommend Marion's book on this enough. It's a really clear illustration of what we're up against. I mean, I think that the most recent fear, and maybe you guys can correct me if I'm wrong about this, that, that the, the major fossil fuel companies made $100 billion profit in the first quarter of this year. So there's an immense amount of, um, of wealth at stake in these questions. And we have to be very conscious that these corporations are not stupid and they shift their tactics as required. So by and large, they have moved away from the old position of overt denialism. You know, you'll still find a few people who will say that climate change isn't happening and, you know, or if it is happening, it's good or, you know, or, sim or some combination of those two things simul simultaneously. But by and large, the big corporates don't say that anymore. They've shifted the argument to, well, you know, one of the most common things is to shift the blame onto individuals. So it's not a structural problem. It's not a corporate problem. The problem is all of you people. And what are you doing to reduce your personal carbon footprint? And by shifting the blame onto people in circumstances where your ability to actually change your individual carbon footprint is more or less zero, it's a way of diffusing any kind of responsibility for the structural change that we need. And so, you know, one of the things that I think all of us have to start doing is being very careful not to listen to what people say, but to look at what they do. And it goes for corporations and that goes for governments. It's one thing to set targets, but it's another thing to open up mass expansion for gas and fuel companies. And the action speaks a lot more powerfully than words. The theme of this festival is uh, radical hope. So we'll try and see if we can find some hope in this. Uh, and, and I'll put this out there. I don't know whether it represents hope or not. President Biden's climate bill has pledged $369 billion to tackle climate change. Very big tax incentives for companies that move into green energy. Really over $100 billion. I think it's fair to say a, a better plan than many expected. Does this represent hope, Marion? Is, is this a step forward? And perhaps, Tim, you can comment afterwards. I think it does, and we were talking before about hope seems to be a bit too much of a passive concept, and we like the idea of optimism rather than hope, which gives us all a bit of agency in this. But I was optimistic by it. I thought it, you know, there's a, a lot of problems in the bill, and there's a lot of things not to like in the bill, which does especially not do some things on licences for fossil fuel companies that many wanted to see. However, I think what is really important about it is the amount of money going into renewable energy to make it happen because where this really matters, we were talking about the gas industry before, the narrative of the gas industry, and you see it in Europe today, is that we are the only ones that can give you the bridge from the fossil fuel industry to renewable energy. And when they say that, what they mean is we're the only ones who can keep the steel industry go going. You won't have any bridges, you won't have any houses, you won't have any buildings without us. Uh, what it, that's what they're saying, that the real industry relies on us. I think what the, that amount of money that's being released in the US under the Biden legislation is saying we are seriously going to look at renewable energy as the industrial energy transformation. And that's something that's vitally important because it breaks that narrative that the gas industry is claiming as its own. And I, I suppose just my final thought on that is that there's a lot of competition now on things like green steel. 
And I think one of the things we do have to be careful about that is that this becomes global cooperation on moving to this industrial revolution, the next phase of the industrial revolution. At the moment, far too much, I think, in the US and China, it's becoming seen as global competition. We don't have time for that. I think the Biden legislation is really good, but we really need to have this as a cooperative global effort. Yeah, one imagines that if Biden hadn't shown some leadership on this, Tim, that it would have put pressure on other countries and their commitments to back away from, from those commitments. So perhaps seeing the US finally doing something may keep yep. the pressure on other countries as well. Look, I think that's true. I think it does help um, enormously. It's crucial to note that a whole lot of the benefits to renewables that are in this legislation actually are contingent on opening up a whole lot of new fossil fuel extraction. Um, so there's a really awful poison pill in there. The flip side is, is Marion's, Marion's dead right that the massive investment going into renewables in that industrial sector is absolutely crucial. And for me, what it does in terms of thinking about hope is as the technologies develop such that they are effectively unstoppable, um, and they really are becoming so, the renewable technologies are very, very clearly ready, willing, and able, and, and get, set, go. They're ready to replace fossil fuels. As that begins to happen more and more and more and more obviously, what I think this does is it enables people power then to step in and actually make the changes that we need. Because all of this talk of gas, I think right here, one of the things we need to remember is that right here in this region was one of the biggest blockades, the Bentley blockade, one of the biggest people powered movements to stop gas in this country. That happened because people got together, because you had this combination of nonviolent direct action, a blockade, um, cultural engagement, musicians and writers, um, indigenous folks, the, the traditional owners working with farmers, working with environmentalists, working with scientists to actually stop massive gas exploration in its tracks. And we're going to need to do that. That's the crucial thing. We've got things like the, the, the new Australian government and the new US government moving to support renewables while also supporting fossil fuels. It does not compute. But if we get enough support for renewables to make sure it's clearly, clearly ready and we use our people-powered movements to stop the fossil fuels, that's the way we can win. This is Best of the Festivals on Radio National Summer and we're listening to a session from the Byron Writers' Festival. On stage with Paul Barclay are journalists Marion Wilkinson and Jeff Sparrow, as well as author and Greens candidate Tim Hollow. Uh, the ABC is reporting how much of a, a social test the UK and Europe is facing this Northern Hemisphere winter because of soaring, really soaring energy prices related, of course, uh, in large part to Ukraine. There's a grassroots movement called Don't Pay UK, calling for people to boycott energy bills from October. The Enough is Enough campaign in Europe is calling for pay rises, rent caps, cheaper energy uh, on food and, and, uh, and taxes on the rich. I mean, this is a massive, Jeff, a massive challenge for government right now, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about the need to decarbonise, sure, but the energy that is available now, the fossil fuel energy that is available now, is tremendously expensive, is being used for people to cook and heat their homes in in Europe, and they're facing a, a, a winter of discontent, right? Yes, and this goes to the point that I tried to make earlier about the instability that we're facing and the way that all of these crises intersect with each other. So I think it's really important to recognise that climate change is part of a broader breakdown of our relationship with the natural world that's taking place at the moment. You know, we can also talk about the proliferation of microplastics or we talk about deforestation or de-extinctions or the, you know, the, the devastation that's happening in the ocean. All of these things are related and they're shaping everything that's happening 
all over the world. So in Australia, we're talking about catastrophic bushfires. We're also talking about catastrophic floods, but we're also talking about the COVID-19 crisis. People know that, you know, we are facing more pandemics as humans encroach onto environments that we've previously had no contact with. And all of these things are intersecting. So in Europe at the moment, of course, dealing with climate change is fundamentally connected with the fallout from the Ukraine war. The Ukraine war is partly about struggles over energy resources. And so the difficulty is so many of the plans for dealing with the climate change are based on this notion that somehow we'll get back to this normality you know, that, that the climate wars will somehow be over, we'll get back to this period of, uh, of clear air and then we can sort of settle these things in a calm and peaceable way. But I think it's really unlikely that that's going to happen. When you look at Europe at the moment, all of these things are intersecting and combining in really difficult ways. And that's why there's so, there, there needs to be so much urgency about it because the sort of toxic concentration of the various crises are only going to continue. Think what will happen next time there is another major bushfire in Australia. All of the oxygen gets sucked out of the climate debate and into the immediate issue of dealing with the fallout of the bushfire or the flood or whatever new biblical horror we may be facing. So it's not going to be a kind of straightforward process where we can tackle these things one at a time. We're in a new and very dangerous and unstable time. How much harder does that make it, Merrigan, then for governments to act to decarbonise when you've got gas and petrol prices going through the roof, hitting ordinary Australians in the pocket, Australians who haven't had a pay rise for God knows how long, inflation's going through the roof, we know we know rent increases. I mean, it's tough out there at the moment. How hard would it be for a government to say, no, we're not going to approve any new resource projects, no new gas fields? Uh, the politics of that are pretty challenging. They're incredibly challenging, and... I think that's why the politics of it are so easily able to be manipulated. We, as, you, as all of you I'm sure know, we did ha have serious issues um, with the energy industry earlier this year. That's all going to flow into your bills. I think there is a terror amongst uh, state governments who cop the blame on this, but also the federal government, that uh, they are going to get the blame when energy prices go up. And it's incredibly easy, essentially, uh, for uh, people like the Daily Telegraph, 2GB, etc., to run it as an anti-renewable argument. It's also, in, I think, quite difficult because there's a lot of suspicion about the amount of manipulation in the market that's been going on. You only have to read the ACCC report to see that there's real problems in how our energy market works and how companies can exploit it. And so I think taking on that is going to be really important for governments. And I think that this has to happen in Europe. We know companies are making super profits. We know that this cannot be allowed to ride because what will happen in this transition is that companies will attempt to make super profits. Government has to be strong enough to intervene in these markets. I think there's a number of inquiries going on at the moment which will give governments here, state and federal, some power to do that. The question is, will they have enough courage to do that when the energy companies scream and scream publicly? But I think it has to happen. It is uh, the timing of this is so crucial. The impact on ordinary consumers is uh, so large at the moment that governments have to be willing to do it and citizens need to put pressure on their governments to do it. And I really hope, and Tim can probably talk about this, that some of the, the new senators, some of the Teal Independents and the minor parties can keep their eye on this with really good Senate and House committee investigations that examine 
what is going on uh, in the profiteering in the energy market as we go through this transition. How much will they be able to do that, Tim, given that they don't well, they hold the balance of power in the Senate, so some leverage there, but that they didn't get what they wanted, which was um, basically a hung parliament where they would have had more influence on the government. Will they still be able to exert the type of influence that Marion hopes to see? I think that the key role for the independents and the Greens on the crossbenches in both houses is going to be building the arguments and building the, the structures of thought that show quite how much the profiteering of these energy companies is entangled with the power of the political parties and the way the political system works. Um, I take a slightly different view that I don't think we as people should be focusing on demanding that governments are going to take these actions because I think they I think we know that they won't. They simply won't. We know that from from decades of experience governments have no intention of heading in that direction because it's not in their interests as they perceive them at the moment. I think you know I guess I take a um, a, a, a slightly controversial take on this in a sense that in in this moment of crisis is an extraordinary opportunity to reinvent the way we do governance, actually. Yeah, we, 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 and we'll talk about that in a minute because yeah. we've been talking about government in this discussion so far right. in a quite conventional sense, haven't yeah. we? And what you're urging us to do through your, your book, Living Democracy, is look at some of the alternatives to that, ways of invigorating democracy. And you quote some examples on the ground that are working, and I do want to talk about them in a minute. But, Jeff, do, do you agree more with Marion or, or with Tim on, on this? I mean, we do have... I mean, government has licence to act in a way that it hasn't had before because the vote has increased for the Teals. They've come from nowhere. The Greens and Labor all have been elected in part on a platform of doing more on climate change. Look, I, th I think we have to be honest about what we are facing. To get ourselves out of the mess we're in, we need a social transformation of the kind <laughs> that we have not seen for generations. And that is only going to come through a mass mobilisation of the kind that we saw in the 60s and the 70s. So, you know, when we're thinking about climate, we should think about a movement as transformative as, say, the women's liberation movement of the 60s and the 70s. And think how much that has transformed absolutely every aspect of, you know, human relationships in Australian society. If you compare Australia of the 1960s to Australia of today and how fundamentally different it is, we need a, a movement of that kind of scale. And this is going to be a challenge for all sorts of reasons, not least because all over Australia we've seen governments impose extraordinarily restrictive laws on the rights to protest so that much of the, um, the kind of uh, non-violent civil disobedience that activists in the 60s and 70s did would now be illegal and see you sent to jail for a long period of time. So, you know, we, we are up against it, but I think Tim is right in the sense that the crises that we face will create moments of hope and moments of change. If we can be certain about one thing, it's that the future will not look like the present. And, you know, I think scary things are going to happen but those scary moments will also create opportunities to do things in the new way. Much as, you know, if we think back to the COVID-19 crisis, yes, it was horrible. You know, yes, a lot of us suffered a great deal through it, but we found ways of making our society, even if temporarily, work in different ways. Mm. And if we did it then, we can do it again under climate change. Uh, so, Marion, there's the, the, the big changes that Tim and, and Jeff are, uh, are suggesting, but there are changes within the way government operates that perhaps we should look at. For example, we know how lobbying and donations can lead to policy capture, mm. that uh, if you receive money from fossil fuel companies, and they are very, very big donors indeed, then this makes it more difficult for you to introduce policy that is anti-fossil fuel. Do we need it's a bit of a Dorothy Dixer, I think, this question, actually. <laughs> uh, 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 what sort of regulation uh, do we need, tighter regulation around lobbying and, and donations to make it less likely that, uh, you know, the piper calls the tune? 
Well, I must say I've been banging on this about this since I was writing about Graham Richardson in the 70s and 80s. So. <laughs> but um, it is a disgrace. We know it's a disgrace. There's two things we need to do, apart from, or well, maybe three, clamping down on donations, force transparency of donations, and most importantly, forced caps on spending. I know everyone will say the High Court won't go along with it, blah de blah de blah but um, you only have to look at the disgrace of the 2019 election uh, when, you know, Clive Palmer was chucking around millions of dollars. I can't see democracy working at, at, the, at its most basic level unless we address this. Now, I know it's probably going to take more crossbenchers in the Senate, more crossbenchers in the House before that happens, but I do hope that these community candidates that are coming through our system will at least uh, be able to finally get the balance of power in the sense of pushing that. Mm. I think it's the most basic thing we can do. And they're very closely linked to their commitments on integrity in government too. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we look at horror at the moment about the US political system and the way lobbyists have just, you know, run so much of the American political system. It's pretty bad here. It's pretty bad here. I, uh, you know, whenever I sort of want to depress myself, I go through the lobbyist register, checking on my old friends and how active they still are. And my God, they are active, particularly the ones who were close to Scott Morrison. You know, you run through the names. Oh, isn't that interesting? Glencore's moved from there to there, you know. Um, Santos has gone from there to there. So it's still a really big deal. And as uh, both Tim and Jeff have said, you know, it gets into the culture of our politics. Uh, so deeply that has to be broken. We're listening to Paul Barclay on stage at the Byron Writers Festival with writers Marion Wilkinson and Jeff Sparrow and Greens candidate and author Tim Hollow. This is Best of the Festivals on Radio National Summer. Tim, your book, uh, your new book is about your first book, I think, uh, uh, is about new ways of doing democracy that learn from our natural ecosystems, a kind of democracy that builds off some of the principles of, of ecology. This would lead to uh, better decentralised governance, which would presumably make us better prepared to deal with the issues that we're talking about today, like emissions reduction, like, like resilience and rebuilding after climate events and so on. Uh, tell us about living democracy as, as you're envisaging it and how it might lead to a better form of governance and democracy? So, yeah, what I, what I take as my, my kind of diving board in a sense is this idea that we actually, we should be looking around at the failure of our systems of government, which is more and more clear and more and more people are acknowledging this, the collapse in confidence in our governing systems, not just here in Australia, but all around the world is, is enormous. And we should actually look at that as a really liberating opportunity to reinvent them. And so many people are doing that in so many different ways. And what it generally comes down to is this understanding that in the natural world, in ecology, health and resilience is based on diversity and interdependence and impermanence, change that is coming from interconnection at every level between diverse elements. So it's not it's not this hyper-individualism at one end or this you know, complete you know, erasure of identity in, in collectivism at the other end. It's a, co it's a combination of the two, a weaving of diversity and interdependence. And what we have in our political systems, constructed over a couple of several, several millennia really, is a system of democracy which is disconnected from us. It's, you know, democracy happens over there. It's a dominating, coercive form of governance which happens separate from us as the community. And I think we need to really think about forms of democracy that have also always existed that are living forms of democracy that are about really this extension of, 
of the human superorganism as, as an ecosystem, in a sense. So it's a democracy which is a living thing in its own right, but it's also a democracy which is a living practice that we do with each other all the time. And there are so many models of this that, that always spring up. This is another one of the lessons of ecology, as I'm sure we, we have all seen in the wake of fires and floods. You see the devastation, and then a few months later, you start to see the shoots emerge. And from, from this collapse comes regrowth. And the regrowth depends on what we do. In human society, the regrowth depends on what we do. And what I find amazing in this space is looking at in, during crises, particularly we see it during, during these climate crises that we've seen, but also in the wake of the pandemic, also in the wake of the big financial crisis over the last decade, communities come together to support each other everywhere, everywhere around the world, communities find ways to support each other through mutual aid. Generally, in the immediate wake, government is absent. And you guys have just seen this so clearly up here. Government vacates the field for a few days while community is organising to support each other. Then when government steps in, they tend to stamp on everything, shut down the mutual aid and work out how to enforce power, usually for their corporate mates. So what we need to think about is how in these moments of crisis can we actually build institutions out of this mutual aid? And I you talk about a bunch of examples through the book from Barcelona to Kurdistan to the south coast of New South Wales where people's mutual aid projects start to become the seeds for a different way of doing democracy. Let, let, let's talk about one example in particular, something called the next economy. This is a process developed by Dr Amanda Kale. You write about she works in communities to help them transition out of fossil fuels. It has some surprising outcomes. It turns out, you say in your book, that these communities, these fossil fuel communities, are not necessarily welded to their coal mines and their gas plants and so on, and their power plants. But actually, if you have an open conversation with people, allow the discussion to flow about what the future might look like, that actually you do have the ability to take some steps forward. Tell us about that process. Absolutely. I think, I think a key lesson here is that these communities are only stuck in these spaces because they're told there's no alternative. And this is one of the extraordinary powers of the current fossil fuel dominated system, which is, as, you know, as Jeff talks about so eloquently, absolutely entangled with the whole capitalist system. It tells us that there is no alternative to the status quo. And when you're told there's no alternative, when, when there's a threat that this is gonna be taken away from you, you're terrified. And, and understandably so. And so it creates this us and them dynamic where you're forced to pick a side between the present and a scary future. And so most people will choose the present. What Amanda does is she says, it's all about not asking people to pick a side. So what she does is she comes into these communities and she gets people to sit around tables through a through a basically an, what's known as an asset-based community development process. You sit around tables and you talk for the first chunk of the discussion about what your community has going for it. What do we have here that we like? And most of the time, what you're going to find is it's not about the power plant or the mine or whatever it is. It's about the community connections. It's about the place, the connection to place, the connection to other people. And people start to tell these positive stories about their home and where they live and their community. And once you've had that conversation for a little while, talked about what you've got going for you together, Amanda then tells a few stories about other communities around the world who are facing similar threats and the kind of exciting positive projects that they've started to put together. And so you piece together from the constructive positive conversation about your community, the tales of what others have been doing around the world, you create a pathway to a constructive future that everybody can get behind. Mm. And Amanda tells these extraordinary stories. One of my favourite is she worked in, in Gloucester up in the Upper Hunter that was facing um, you know, the encroachment of fossil fuel industries. Um, she talks of two men in particular 
who'd found themselves on opposite sides of this divide literally come to fisticuffs in the street over this divide. Both attended one of these meetings. By the end of one of these meetings, they had plans which they then put into action to start a renewable energy cooperative together which is now working, you know. This is the kind of thing that we can do when we live democracy. When we say, you know, when we reject that old view of dead democracy over there as a power over us, we start to live it ourselves, create, co-create our common future together. This is the alternative pathway to, to getting to the future that we need. I'm in conversation with Tim Hollow, Marion Wilkinson and Jeff Sparrow at the Byron Writers' Festival. So, Jeff, this is a smaller scale of, of, of democracy operating at the community level, getting people involved in deliberation and participation, responding to the challenges that community has. You know, is there scope for more of this? I mean, you were talking before about what you thought uh, where the optimism could come from, from the social movements on the ground. Is this a, a process that works alongside that, the type of process you're thinking about? Oh, look, 100%. I mean, it's, it should be clear to anyone who's got a functioning brain cell that there's no individual <laughs> there's no individual solution to the problems we face, right? If there's any way out of this, it has to be something that we do collectively. So that means people working together. I guess one of the arguments I make in my book is to call attention to the economic logic that we're dealing with and the problems that it causes us. That is, I was, I was mentioning before, you know, that we're dealing with a broader environmental breakdown across all sorts of areas. It's very, very difficult for me to understand how we think we can get out of the crisis that we're in so long as we are committed to an economic model that must expand blindly year after year in search of profit. You know, we're in a situation where any politician who does not deliver a significant 2 3 to 3%, 4% expansion in the national economy will probably lose the next election because the country will lapse into recession. We must grow and grow and grow blindly. Now, what else grows and grows blindly? A cancer cell. So... And this is really important, I think, because it's very easy to get into discussions that are simply about what technologies are going to save us. Well, think about the introduction of capitalism to Australia in 1788. In the, the course of the few years after white settlement in Australia, when the logic of capitalist expansion, when the logic of for-profit production was introduced, the Australian continent saw one of the most devastating processes of environmental destruction that it has ever seen. You know, you can read the accounts um, of the early settlers talking about how topsoil just blew away, how the, the landscape was um, transformed all around their eyes. Bruce Pascoe's book is very, very good on this. Well, it's worth thinking. What was the technology that caused that tremendous destruction in the Australian continent? It was what? Picks and shovels, it was sheep, it was cattle, it was sailing ships. All of these things that we would think of today as green technologies, they were the things that did the damage. And they did the damage because they were devoted to the blind pursuit of profit in ways that could not take into account ecological priorities. And so, you know, I mean, I hate to sort of like heap on all of the problems that, that, that we're facing, but... It just seems to me that we cannot go on like this. We cannot go on just thinking that the economy is going to expand year in, year in, year out, and there will be no problems. It'll all be fine. Every year we'll use more and more resources blindly, and there will be no consequences for this. I mean, if someone was trying to sell you this, you know, you say, like, there's a big bridge in Sydney that you might want to buy as well. <laughs> Jeff and I last night were talking to a local about the aftermath of the terrible floods here and she had been recording the experiences of some of the people who had helped save others from their houses and it really dawned on me that these people were climate refugees. For many of them, for some of them at least, going back to their house as a long-term solution is no long-term solution. The lo very location of some of these towns is now in question. I mean, we've just been talking about small-scale democracy, but in a sense, 
we are going to need intervention by big government here, aren't we, to actually help provide some solutions here. Insurance companies are not going to insure this property anymore. Some of it's written off already. There's the threat of another La Nina coming up, more rain uh, that none of us want to even think about. What is the role of government in helping, big government, I suppose, in helping the transition here? Well, when I was coming up here, uh, because I'd followed the floods quite a bit, I sat down and read the report into what had happened. And the thing that absolutely hit me between the eyes was despite everything that had happened in the bushfires, an entire Royal Commission going through the failures of government during the bushfires. When you look at the Lismore Flood Report, it is just a litany of government failure. At the most fundamental level, whether where the report talks about without community intervention, you would have had a mass casualty event in Lismore, and that's the words that that report uses. I think one of the things that was so obvious to me reading that report is that when state, the big, big government comes in, state and federal, because you do need those resources, the importance of it being linked to the community of operating with the community is absolutely critical. There's things in the report that was just, you know, rank stupidity of uh, government agencies not talking to community, not dealing with community. Classic example was, I gather, with one of the big evacuation centres that uh, was set up in Lismore at Southern Cross University. The state police came in over the top, were bringing people into the evacuation centre. No one had even bothered to find out that that evacuation centre, which was supposed to have been resourced for the flood, didn't even have any diesel to have any power, didn't have sufficient security. So people left the evacuation centre to sleep in their cars because they were so scared about sleeping in a dark room. I think, my God, if that is what government is up to at this stage of the game in the adaptation we've got a we've got to get right then it says everything that somehow either through Tim's ideas or Jeff's ideas or your ideas some much stronger pathways where federal and state government on these issues are communicating with people on the ground because you know and I don't want to be doomist because this is a, a festival around hope, but I think what really worries me about having been through this, studied this so much, is that people will die if, if these things aren't dealt with properly. You know, we do really have to get serious about this and we do have to impress this on state and federal governments. You know, you are not just here to sit on a bench. Mm. You actually have to do things. I was going to say, you really have to wonder how people like Ross Garno feel after, you know, writing these reports, uh, these warnings decades ago, and just watching his report kind of come to fruition as a result of, uh, of so little effective action. Uh, so, Tim, how, how do you think some of the models of, of democracy and governance that you reference and talk about in your book could help uh, some of the communities around here recover and build resilience and adaptation, climate adaptation uh, in the future? I think they're, they're the obvious solutions and people are doing it already, um, not just here but all around the world because it's, it's how when, when government isn't helping and when often, far, far too often government is making things worse, people just are, are in there with their sleeves rolled up actually helping each other and building these new systems. And some of that is just is, is really you know, informal grassroots cooperative stuff. Sometimes in various places around the world it actually starts to become the seeds of a new way of doing government actually, which is, which is co-governance where the community is doing it. One of the most extraordinary examples for me is, is not specifically climate related, although it's not... 
it's not entirely unrelated, is what the Kurds are doing in in northeast Syria. And this is a people who have been oppressed and excluded from from you know extremely authoritarian systems of government in Iraq, Syria, and Turkey over many many generations. They'd been fighting. Um, really this this Maoist revolutionary struggle for a long time with not a lot of success, it must be said. And they turned to the work of, of Murray Bookchin, an American anarchist, about municipal confederalism. And what they started to do in the ruins of these oppressive states was just start to create their own nation from the grassroots up. So saying, nobody's coming to save us. We know that. There's no way they're coming to save us here. So we're going to create our own way of doing things and they start building this system of, of, of block by block, city block by city block, town by town, tying together community cooperatives for, for economic systems, community governance for you know, helping to, to repair roads and water supply and fuel supplies and food. Um, and, and out of this system grows this extraordinary nation now of two million people, a multi-ethnic nation of two million people, um, sometimes known as Rojava, sometimes known as, as the autonomous area of northeast Syria, where there's more effective government going on in those communities there than there is in the nation states that are recognised around them. Much, much more effective government going on. And you can tell that because the communities around them are seeking to join. Like, this has grown to up to the point of a two million person nation now because community after community is looking and saying, I want some of that, thank you very much. This is a better way of doing it. Um, so there's these amazing models that I believe that we can, we can do. Sometimes they can interact with government as it currently exists, absolutely, because they send this feedback mechanism to government and say, you need to support us and enable us to do this. Sometimes they just turn their back on, on government as it exists and says, we can do it better than, better than you, and so we'll do so. We need to decarbonise the world's economy, Jeff, at a time when the two biggest powers in the world are at loggerheads. How much is a geopolitical conflict like that likely to affect and play out on our efforts to reduce emissions around the world, in, especially in those two leading economies? I think it's absolutely crucial. So, you know, John Curtin turns away from the British Empire and to the American Empire in the 1940s. Ever since then, you know, Australian uh, strategic interests have been aligned with American hegemony in the Asia-Pacific all through that period, the tremendous strength of the American economy allows the Americans to establish some 800 military bases around the world and see off all of their imperial rivals. That period is now over. The American economy is in a parlous state. The Chinese economy is growing very, very quickly. The old status quo will not sustain. China has one overseas base. The Americans have 800. They have troops all around China. They have in Japan, in, um, in, in Korea. The Chinese are increasingly seeing themselves as a superpower and asserting their interests. Now, John Howard used to say that Australia does not have to choose between the United States and America. We can continue the strategic alliance with the United States, but we can export resources to China, and it's that that recent prosperity in Australia has depended on. Unfortunately, now the Americans and the Chinese are saying, yes, you do have to choose. On Best of the Festivals, we've been listening to Paul Barclay speaking with three writers at the Byron Writers Festival. Marion Wilkinson, award-winning journalist and author of The Carbon Club. Tim Hollow, Greens candidate and author of Living Democracy. And Jeff Sparrow, journalist and the author of Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.